Welcome to the Amazon Legends Podcast, where we have real stories about making it big on Amazon. Our guests are CEOs of large companies and entrepreneurs who became powerful sellers, also experts specializing in helping sellers, and both former and current Amazon employees who will give us an insight from behind the scenes. Here's your host, Nick Urison. Welcome to another episode of Amazon Legends. Uh, my next guest is an Amazon marketer turned Amazon seller and turned a very specific Amazon expert. This is almost like the, the medicine. It keeps getting fragmented. So Amazon business is also getting fragmented with different expertise. He's also a, a Kung Fu enthusiast, creator of the idea dad on YouTube. Uh, so everybody meet my guest, Eric Stopper. Welcome to the show, Eric. Hey, what's up? Glad to be here. Great to have you. So when you and I met, uh, you told me about what you did, and I was fascinated with, uh, you know, how this actually came to be an expertise. So tell us uh, what that is. Yeah, I mean, I think kind of the, the witty response that I have to that is I, I help kingmakers make millionaires. Um, for a long time, I would Right. I would I would meet brands. And the idea was to say, hey, I, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of people become millionaires who are in exactly your same scenario. And so now, like, I work with a whole bunch of different organizations that do that for people. And so like these these aggregators and these agencies, they are, you know, they're they're making they're making kings of people. They're making kings and queens. They're making millionaires. And so I get to I get to have a close hand in that process by doing evaluations for business, handling due diligence for private equity organ, you know, organizations that are looking to buy product companies. So that's, yeah, that's what I spend the majority of my time doing is uh, Amazon evaluations. So when a private equity firm or an aggregator is interested in acquiring a seller, they need to know, of course, if whatever the seller presents as the information about business, whether it's liquidity, profitability, you know, whatever. Um, they don't understand what to make of all that information. They come to you. Is, is that is that how it is? You know, I don't know. I don't know that they don't understand. I mean, these aggregators, they all have, they have departments that are built around due diligence, right? Because they, they need to make sure that they don't overpay or underpay for an asset. I mean, of course, they would love to underpay, but um, they need to make sure they don't overpay and that they don't buy something that is going to just be a red mark on the books. And oftentimes these e-commerce sellers, right, the majority of the ones that are looking to exit, they are tired. They are very motivated to sell. And so as a result, a lot of the times there's some red marks in their books, right? There's some, there's some skeletons in their closet that they aren't as honest about. And so typically like they have these departments and they have these processes and they have these tools that they use to audit these companies. And I've, I've had the opportunity to work with a whole bunch of aggregators and they all follow a similar flow, but it is this ever evolving mess. Mm -hmm. And so there's two sides to it. The first side is an aggregator will hire me to do the due diligence. And in that situation, they usually like, somebody on their fulfillment team for Amazon was handling the due diligence, like someone that's actually responsible for running the companies. So they have, you know, the director of account management or one of their major like account reps who are responsible for like 
logistics and advertising and content and all these all these many things and so they also get tasked with like evaluating the quality of these assets that they're buying and they never have time they never ever ever have time and so that's when it typically gets passed to me or somebody like me and then the other side of it is there are uh, companies who are at a much much lower EBITDA or seller discretionary earnings amount we actually use something called PAG. It's post advertising gross sales. So anybody that's below, like, I think the, for the most part, it's like anybody below $150,000 in seller discretionary earnings is just not attractive to private equity. They're not attractive to aggregators. So you look at Thrasio and Heyday and even like Suma and a lot of these uh, smaller aggregators, they're not even willing to touch the, the smaller assets because there's just more risk, you know, like if I'm betting on the brand growing at 15% year over year, like the average of Amazon, just by doing the minimum, right. Uh, then I need a bigger asset. Right. And so I get brought in on base, like on most of these small uh, evaluations because over the last, you know, six years, all I've been doing is pitching and evaluating product companies. Uh, I just finished my 2,649th brand that I've that I've looked at. Yeah, <laughs> and like a lot of them suck, and a lot of them like they should have never hired an agency, frankly. Yeah. But, so hold on, I have I have so many questions. All right, so, I want to get my questions in there. Yeah. So there's two aspects of due diligence, the way I see. One is you look at the information and you're trying to make sense of the information in terms of, is this a good deal or not? And then the second thing is, is that information accurate? Mm. Because as you know, most business, most entrepreneurs who come up with a brand idea and build this brand idea, don't actually know how to run a business. <laughs> Yeah, and they're definitely not a bookkeeper. Um, yeah, so and, and their books. So uh, they may say, okay, we have so much in inventory, but actually they don't. They have much more or much less. Uh, so uh, they, they may have an inventory value on the books that, that you may need to be evaluating. But then again, so what part is your area? All Yeah, all of those things. So... The, the, data, the data quality and the data accuracy, uh, whenever I ask somebody for a PL, that is, that is just a baseline comparison to evaluate how good they are at actually tracking their books. So if they have QuickBooks, right? For the most part, um, I've been impressed. Like most people actually itemize their transactions and they actually have gone to the trouble of hiring a bookkeeper to go through and, you know, and, and comb through all their transactions. But at the end of the day, like, we're talking about Amazon, this, this beast of a, of a company. Yeah, very complicated. And they can rarely get it right, but most of them can be about 95% right. That's, that's been my experience so far. When you start adding multiple geographies, you know, UK, and we had somebody that was selling on Amazon Japan. So when, when you have those, you know, kind of data conflation points, it, it, it gets to be a real mess. And Shopify, right? Like most of them have some sort of Shopify, but this, the sales are almost non-existent. It's just kind of like a, if they get looked up, they want to be able to, to be able to 
sell products. So I'm in the business of, of asset valuation, right? They're coming to me and saying, here's all the things that I own. Here's all the things that I have. Here's all my, my gold coins. Tell me how much all my coins are worth. And on the other side, the, the aggregator, the private equity company also wants to know how much those coins are worth and how much they are going to appreciate in value, you know, with a handful of little levers that we can pull and dials that we can adjust. So we typically are running like a unified transaction report in, in the payments tab of Seller Central. Uh, I honestly, like to date, I've only done two Vendor Central accounts out of those, two, those 2,600. It's been like vastly Seller Central. Um, and you know, not, not to say that it's like impossible, but I wouldn't buy a vendor account personally. I, I think that vendor is an absolute mess. So on the yeah, seller side, the yeah, vendor central model, I think is on its way out. That's well, not, not according to the vendor managers, man. They, they say that they're allocating some serious resources to it because what happened yeah. is they, well, I should say maybe smaller ones. Well, you remember it was like, dude, I was, I was at Expo West. This was like 2019, maybe. I can't remember the exact date, but I was at Expo West in Anaheim. And I th- people started telling me like, Amazon just cut off all my, all my vendor orders. They sent me an email saying that I wasn't going to get any more POs yeah. that they were reducing them like crazy. And this happened time after time after time. So the grocery category got just demolished. So they cut off 85% of all the vendors. They just stopped ordering from them. Because they weren't making profit on the shipments, on like the actual, you know, per unit uh, acquisition costs. And then at retail price, they just like the, the numbers weren't adding up. So Amazon made this pretty harsh decision to cut them all off and say, hey, like you should sign up for a professional seller account. What an opportunity because vendor, I don't like vendor. Sellers, sellers much easier to work with, in my opinion. So I dive into Seller Central and I run, there's like, 12 reports that I want to look at. And really I only need. So what are those reports? Give us those reports. Yeah. So the unified transaction report is the single source of truth. That's the data that I'm going to build a PL off of that. And I'm going to compare that with their actual PL and the data that they provide me from their other platforms. So the unified transaction report tells us the order refund, uh, like promotional values that gives you all the fees it gives you the like advertising that you spent on on that sale, and so it is incredible. It it's, is at SKU level, of course. You can aggregate per SKU. Yeah, exactly right. And you, you know, typically there's like a lot of data cleaning that needs to go on in there because if you look at the actual like even the even the date and time in one of the columns, I think it is column A, is a string of numbers, and then it's a date string, and then it's like a it has two different time zones on it. So you got to clean that up. You got to like, yeah, it, Amazon data is always like that. Twice. Yeah. It, but once you clean it up, it takes like, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes to clean up. Then you can build a PL. And the PL tells us the most important thing, uh, which is the profit margin, right? How much, how much net profit are they making at the end of the day? Over a 12-month period. But like, the item cost you have to pick up manually, right? From the seller. No, no. Well, so it's you have the you have the order, the number of units ordered, and you have the transactional value of that order. So if someone orders two, then you can you can parse that out and say, okay, like this was a $15 product, you can get the average price. 
all of that is is present in the but the actual landed cost of the item the cogs yeah yeah that's, so that, that's not in seller central that's a real tough one for me and it's honestly it's the bane of my existence because i i ask everybody for cogs and one of two things happens first they don't send me all of it they'll send me like you know, 80% of their, of their inventory uh, cost of goods sold, because it seems to me that they don't know. They don't actually know what the cost of their products are. Why don't they know? Do you have any idea? It's the 80, 20, you know, the 20% of their catalog that's making 80% of the sales just gets way more attention and the other ones fall completely off. Well, this is my working with my clients. This is my experience. First of all, they never create a revenue model in the first place. Mm, no cash flow where, model. Where they look at what is my landed cost, what is the Amazon commission, and what is the FBA fee, and therefore, what am I going to net on right. a sale? They do not create that in the first place, let alone whether or not they have a healthy model. That's a different question, because if you don't even create it in the first place, they don't know. They just do they, they, they make the calculations in their head. Right, it's all, it's all heuristics, right? They use general rules of thumb. They yeah, yeah. So, if, so now, if, if you have like an eighty percent contribution margin, you're typically going to be profitable on Amazon. That's a good rule of thumb, regardless of category. But if you're at like sixty percent contribution margin, then if you're in jewelry, you're yeah. not going to make money. If you're in well, there is something else also. And, you know, as they say, the, the devil is in the details. So what happens is, let's say that, I mean, you know, as you know, most of them are, are buying from China. So the, the factory gives X a price, you know, $10, whatever. Now that needs to be imported here. So what is involved in importation? There is transportation, customs, duty, taxes, you name it. Yes, they can buy maybe CNF so that it's all included. Doesn't matter. There are still other charges. And also those charges fluctuate. So the point is, when you ask them, what's your landed cost? There isn't one single bill that they can go to and say, here, here is my land. Right. No, it's like a number of things. So they never know in the first place what that analysis was. You're, you're absolutely right. And and. Typically, the way that we get past that is we just say, send us screenshots of your last like five invoices. Send us the actual, what your supplier sent to you for the DHL and everything. And it's, they, those guys, like the manufacturers shipping products, they've got that dialed. They know, you know exactly well, how much. Well, let me tell you another. Okay, now we talk, we're talking about China. So, so I had this, <laughs> this just makes me laugh every time. I had this client, okay. They had done three and a half million in 2019. Sorry, uh, 2018. They hit eight and a half in 2019. And by July of 2020, they had exceeded 30. Boom. Now, the guy running the business was a hired guy. He was, because the entrepreneur was a high school guy, he hired somebody to run the business because he didn't understand how to run a business. This is a hired professional. Comes to me and says, hey, Nick, can you help me with our uh, factory? You know, they're basically buying and placing the orders with the factory. Can you help me figure out how much we owe these guys? So I said, sure. I said, do you have the ledger? He says, no, we don't actually have a ledger for them on the system because 
uh, it's very complicated, but I have everything in my Excel file. So, so I said, okay, let's take a look at your Excel file. You know what he's done in his Excel file? He put the purchase orders, how much he ordered on the PO. And then he said, our deal is I take 2% discount if I pay with the PO, 30% uh, of the, the order. And then the balance we pay when it ships. Yep, pretty typical. So fine, no problem. So you place a $1,000 order, 2%. You take 20 bucks. So now you owe 980 bucks. You pay 30% down. And then the balance when the merchandise arrives. But okay. So he said, I've been keeping this. It's been pretty clean until recently. But the, in the last couple of months, it just totally went out the window. I said, well, why did it go out the window? He says, because they never shipped what we ordered. Hmm. Some POs got canceled, some POs got short shipped, some POs shipped more. So I said, yeah, but that's okay. I said, what about the invoice? Oh, we never get an invoice. Ouch. So I said, wait a minute. So your ledger that you say that you, you're keeping, that, that's not based on invoice? No, no, we never get an invoice. So this guy has been keeping a so-called ledger, a paid professional yeah. based on POs. I said, you know what the PO is, right? I said, PO is a wish list. What you are like, it's not a transactional document. All it does is it sets the terms of the, the transaction, but you become, you incur a liability when an invoice is issued against that PO, uh, then you can check, did they charge the right price? Did they ship, ship the right quantity? Most important, am I receiving the right number of pieces? Right. Have you ever done this? No, 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 we never. Man, no, no, it's not. So you're telling me, send me a screenshot of the invoice. What if there is no invoice? You know, so so far, the and and I want to talk about China as well. I think this is a this is really important. Um, but as far as like invoices go. Everybody that I've done due diligence for has invoices so far. It's been, it's been really nice. They're like, sure, I got them for you. Here they are. And they even have like the, the manufacturer has, has written notes of how many units, how many uh, boxes, how many pallets. And it's really super helpful. So we can break it down. We factor that into the, into the P&L and life is good. Uh, the one kind of wild card with that is the shipping prices overall have just skyrocketed over the last, you know, 18 months. So we, you know, one person that was spending twenty five hundred dollars on a, on like a twelve foot container, they were spending like five grand on it in the last three months. Crazy to me, and yeah. and I don't I don't know that that's actually representative of what's going on in the logistics. It might be logistics companies taking advantage of, you know, hearsay uh, in the market. I, I heard that it's the, the they they somebody's always taking advantage. So. Um... We'll see that. So bottom line. So let me ask you the golden question. So when you have a seller that submits all this information to you and they've got, you've done your due diligence on the accuracy of it, as well as the health of it, you looked at it and you've realized, okay, this is good exactly as they presented and I can trust these and they are painting a good picture. 
versus someone still a good picture, but they're not accurate. You found a lot of problems that, that you identified a lot of work. If acquired, this company is going to need to be cleaned up. How does that affect the valuation? Ooh, that's a really good question. So uh, valuations are rep representative of, of demand in the market. So aggregation has cooled off a bit. You know, there's not a lot of acquisitions happening in the aggregator space right now. And it's, it's kind of quiet, but a lot of these companies are, are struggling because, uh, I mean, there's a bunch of reasons. Like uh, one is they didn't pick a niche. They're just buying whatever they can find. And then you get into like the operational intricacies of running a brand. And it's like, oh, turns out running a hot sauce brand is way different than running like an electric stapler brand. And we need to have somebody who is really good at both of those things. So you're seeing these aggregators who their assets are, are underperforming because they are private equity people. Right. And so, you know, I've seen, I've seen it all right. Where there's, there's a private equity organization that hires an agency. There's a private equity organization that tries to build their own internal, you know, resources. And there are, uh, you know, they'll, they'll cross pollinate too. Like these aggregators will share the management of some of these brands and it just got to be a real mess. And, the expectation from the investors was way too high. You know, they were, they were looking at like a 12 month turnaround and it was kind of, it was kind of unknown what was gonna happen, like how this business model worked. But you saw Thrasio, you know, getting valued at a billion dollars like so fast, just based on the money that they, that they uh, raised at the valuation that they got. Um, but the expectations of like how the investors get their money back was, was basically just gonna be hey, we're going to invest in this asset and it's going to grow at X percent and you're going to make your money via distributions. But the, the bigger opportunity, in, in, in my humble opinion, right, this is one man's opinion, is they should bundle the assets together and sell them to other organizations who can actually manage them more effectively, right? Let me, let me build, you know, let me build Amazon for four different product categories in a niche for like, I don't know, office supplies. And then let me sell this packet of assets to an office supply company who can get them retail, who can uh, start to expand like their Facebook and Google and TikTok ads, you know, like they where they have internal resources to de dedicate towards that. So then if you buy, you know, a business that's struggling, they, and you get, you know, a, a lowish multiple, like, you know, two to three X, which is still like life-changing money for a lot of these people. Um, you can then sell it for like five or six X of what you bought it for. That's, that's like, that's the, that's the business model that I think is going to emerge as, as something that reigns supreme. Or you take like, I think uh, Blue Will Media is probably one of the best examples of this, this, this company run by Trevor George. So Trevco, his, other company. So uh, Blue Will Media, they're, a, they're an agency uh, that has done extraordinarily well. They have great pricing. Um, and then they have their owned and operated assets. So they, as an agency, basically like bought a bunch of companies and they're just holding on to them and holding on to the profits. And they're just a profitable enterprise. And they didn't, they didn't raise a ton of money, they were launching these products, right? They were just starting from scratch and launching them. They weren't buying them as an asset. So the value of those companies, I think is gonna be 
a lot more true, right? It's just like, okay, what is the, what is the profit margin on this and how much profit is it going to make over the next five years if it grows at the current growth rate that it has right over the last five or so. So I'm getting to answering your question. I promise. I know this is like a lot of, a lot of extra fluff around the edges, but um, valuations. So market conditions create those valuations. And right now, if you have less than $250,000 in EBITDA, you're typically not going to get any greater than a three X multiple on your, on your EBITDA. So if I did, you know, 200 K I could probably 200 K in in like true profit discretionary earnings. I could probably get like six, yeah, like six or 700 maybe for it. Like if, if I have a really solid brand and everything is really healthy and I'm, you know, my, my listings don't have everything that they could on them. Uh, that's, that's one of the things that I have to, I have to look at subjectively and objectively, right. I, I got to understand the, the quality and, uh, and just like the, the raw numbers of, okay, let's look at the, let's look at their listing. Do they have lifestyle photos? Do they have infographics? Do they have video? Do they have optimized content? How optimized is their content, right? If I do an SEO analysis on them using something like Scribbles from Helium 10, does that, you know, do they have more than 20% of the keywords from the top competitor in their space included in their listing somewhere? Do they have Amazon's choice for anything? Do they have an editorial recommendation? Do they have a plus content? Is there, is their trademark actually granted or was it just given to them through the accelerator? Uh, do they have uh, coupons and promotions and deals and, uh, you know, very low out of stock and very low defect rate? Thing is, this is, this is a really strange kind of space to discuss because if they have all those things, the asset is higher quality, right? It is just, it's a better thing that I'm buying. But that also means that I can't do anything to it. I can't, I can't add graphics to increase the conversion rate. I can't add video to increase the conversion rate. So lately, I'm actually looking at the quality of the listings as a negative thing, right? So I can't do it. You know, like, well, how am I going to grow That's this? That's a thing? very interesting way to look at it. Yeah. So it's, you know, that's, that's one of the smaller factors because at the end of the day, like a truly master, a a true master of advertising can take an asset. And if the price and the reviews of the top three to five competitors in their space are, uh, if, if, if the person has over like 5,000 reviews, like the number one uh, company in, in the category and the brand that I'm looking at only has like 200. It's just what I'm, you know, what am I, what am I going to do? I'm not, I'm going to have to cheat on reviews. Well, and that, uh, just to give you a, a different perspective, isn't that then perfect for scaling by increasing promotion? Because you don't have to look at anything else. You just you say, okay, I have a really good product. It's ready for showtime. The guy wasn't able to promote it as much but now i can put my resources in and maybe the hell out of it then yeah does right the 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 ultimate question is does my ability to deploy more working capital increase the scalability of this business right that is that is such an important question that i look at every day and it's not that easy to answer right i've got 
I've got between four and five advertising products that I can use on Amazon specifically. I have, uh, and put external to Amazon on the table for a second. We need to get to that, right? Facebook, Google, all those things, the right. funnel, email, right? Oh my gosh, what a missed opportunity for people. Um, so inside of Amazon, I got five advertising products, sponsored products, sponsored brands, sponsored brand video, sponsored display, and then DSP for some people, right? Those are, those are the basic advertising products. So if they are not doing some of them, slam dunk, I know that I can scale it, right? That's like an easy checkbox. Like they're not doing sponsored display. I know that I can make more money. I know it. Like regardless of any of the data that comes from sponsored products or sponsored brands, I know my sponsored display and my sponsored brand video are going to make me money. So I, I would look at those and say, if their listings are perfect and they just haven't deployed capital on those, I know I can make an impact. I know that I can, I can make my numbers. Um, how much? I'm typically going to look at the lower ROI advertising uh, product. So if, you know, if they're sponsored product, the regular ones are, you know, maybe it's got like a, like a three X ROAS. I'm just going to assume that for just for my sponsored display. Cause usually from what I've seen so far, display actually does pretty damn well. It's like, I think the average that I saw this week was or last week was six, like six X ROAS on the, on display ads. That's pretty so, cool. So that's like, that's the number one thing. Are they, are they advertising on all the things and are they spending more than like $2,000 a month on those products? For the most part, none of them are. And so that's, that's a pretty quick indicator that we're going to be like an impact. Um, number two is how much brand traffic is generating their current uh, success. There's some people I, I pop the hood and it's just like, it's like 40% of their advertising sales is coming from brand. I can't do anything with that. You know what I mean? Like that's just, they're, they're, they're making all this revenue off of something that they already would have made revenue off of without advertising for it. Like it doesn't make sense. Uh, the next thing that I look at is then um, their, their keywords. So I love Cerebro. You know, I'm a Helium 10 affiliate because I just, I, I love them. I also love Zonguru though. I really like, I'm a champion for that product. Um, I think it's, it's something that a lot of these aggregators and agencies should take a closer look at. And I think that, that John Tilly over at Zonguru should make a really sweet enterprise solution, but a conversation for another day. So I hop into Cerebro and I look at the number one competitor in the market and if they're doing, you know, let's say that the, that the asset that I'm looking at is doing like 30, 40 K a month. And the number one seller in the category is doing $120,000 a month. That discrepancy is, is, you know, it's significant. It's, 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 uh, it's uh, encouraging, right? I can say, Oh, cool. Uh, there's potential for me to potentially be the number one in this category. Let's look at number two, right? I'm, I'm not going to dethrone them in the next year. I'm not going to dethrone them probably in the next 24 months, but if I really push, maybe I can, you know, become the number one in, in three years. So then I look at number two. If number two is also at 30, 40 K, I'm not really interested in the asset. You know, it's just like, what am I going to do? I'm already, I'm already generating as much as the number two player in the category. Like for me to jump up to that number one position is going to take an exorbitant amount of resources. Finally, like I can run that Cerebro on that number one competitor and I can see how many keywords they have. I can see how many keywords are on the first page. I can see how many are in the top four positions where 64% of the clicks happen. I can see how many are ranked in the number one position. I can, I can see how many ads are, are, are running in that number one position where 35% of all the clicks happen. So 
I then compare those two cerebral lists and I look at the impressions and the IQ score and the CPR that they have for them. It's like the number of units that you have to sell over an eight day period in order to rank on the top half of the first page. And granted, like all of these are estimates and Helium 10 gives me different numbers about how accurate they are, but it gives me just like a good back of the napkin, like, oh, the top competitor has 8,000 keywords and this asset has 3,000. Okay, we got 5,000 keywords that are missing. Oh, the top competitor has 2,000 keywords on the first page and the asset only has, you know, 200 and so on, right? I can, I see that discrepancy. I see the amount of impressions. I can also estimate cost per mil and I can start to work backwards and say, okay, cool. Like if I advertise for this keyword and I get, you know, 50 clicks and I have X percent click-through rate and I have X percent conversion rate, then I could expect to make an additional this much revenue by advertising more effectively for these keywords that I'm not ranked on the first page for. I know that was a super long answer, but um, that helps us get to this, this measure of how much can I actually increase this asset? So Go, taking the, the other stuff off the shelf. For the most part, none of these people are doing Facebook, Google, email. It's a complete blind spot for Amazon sellers. And really like, I want to encourage everybody, if you have any emails, like download Klaviyo and get to work, watch some YouTube videos and just like work on your email marketing because we're seeing like a 19 to one ROAS on emails, email spending. The resources allocated to email, you can make $19 back per dollar spent. It's wild. And you only need like a thousand emails. You know, you don't, you don't need a crazy email. Obviously, like if you have 20, it's going to be way better. But there are some people that have tens of thousands of emails that they've never touched. Um, they have Facebook campaigns that they completely gave up on, especially after iOS 14. It's just complete, like they just gave up. Google ads, man, like for snap. So this is, this is something that I always uh, am curious about. So there is, as you know, there is this two programs that work hand in hand, Amazon Attribution, and brand referral bonus program. Yeah. So uh, Amazon attribution for the listeners, it, it it's something that you use for, you have to be brand registered and then it enables you to create specific links for your external campaigns that you run outside Amazon, like Facebook and Google. And, right. so, and the whole purpose here is very simple. Where to identify where your traffic is coming from if you are advertising outside Amazon. So attribution does that to encourage that, which by the way, the hidden agenda behind this is for Amazon to bring more traffic that's not yeah. already on Amazon, which yeah. means that more shoppers coming to Amazon for free, by the way, that, that sellers are paying for. So they, the least they could do is just give a tool that will identify. So they've done that. But to encourage that even more, they have this program called Brand Referral Bonus Program that says, if you advertise outside Amazon and you bring in traffic and that traffic generates $10,000 in sales, we'll give you a percentage of that back. So let me repeat that again for those who missed it. $10,000 comes in, in sales that came from your Google ads to your product listing. Amazon will pay you back average 10%. That means $1,000 out of that $10,000 sale will go back into your pocket. How will that happen? They simply credit your settlement report. You get a credit entry for $1,000 reimbursement. 
So uh, with those, you have obviously the advantage of advertising outside and actually getting some kind of a reward for it. However, the pushback that I'm getting, and that's what my question to you is, the pushback I'm getting is when somebody is on Amazon and you advertise to them on Amazon and say, come look at my listing, they're already there. They're already there for shopping. But when you bring somebody from outside Amazon, conversion rates drop significantly. And then at some point it becomes not viable. So what, what is your take on that? Yeah. So we built an entire product around uh, advertising using the brand referral program. And we were basically just doing Facebook ads cold to Amazon. And a couple things happen. So number one, the attribution is real, is crap. It's really bad. So maybe like two out of 10 transactions because it's last touch, right? So they have to click on the ad and they have to buy the product immediately after clicking on the ad. And you're just, you're skipping several parts of the funnel. So it's really hard. Um, the, the solution to that is, is a squeeze page, uh, but it was, it was just so like, it was so abysmal that we went back to the drawing board and how we were going to approach this, this, uh, this strategy. So, you know, basically like the alternative is you advertise to a landing page and on the landing page, it's like, Hey, we're taking you to Amazon. Here's a coupon, you know, do kind of like the landing cube model. Uh, this is, this is, you know, the information about it. And then they get to the Amazon listing and then they buy and then the conversion rate is, is pretty steady. Cause you lose a lot of people in that squeeze page and only the people that are you know, actually going to buy or have a higher probability of buying go through. It's a lot of extra work. I don't know that it's worth it. Um, so the, attri the attribution wasn't great. We weren't getting a lot of money back on, on the, on Facebook ads. And as Amazon rolls out multivariant uh, attribution, it's going to be a lot better, you know, the, them being able to track you from the Facebook ad to the Amazon listing and then over to Pinterest, wherever you were, wherever you navigated and then back to Amazon eventually, like being able to show that, is in the future for Amazon. So it's going to get better. Uh, we noticed that all of this cold traffic, because it had a lower conversion rate, Amazon looked at them as, as unique sessions, as unique, yeah, as unique sessions and each one of them as unique page views. Mm -hmm. So that factors into your ranking. If you have a whole bunch of sessions and you have a low session percentage, a low conversion rate, you lose rank, you lose BSR. All right, exactly. So we turned on these ads for these, for these companies and they started to lose not only sales in that, in that vertical, but they started to lose rank overall. Their organic sales suffered. So we like quickly turned that shit off and we were like, no, we gotta, let's, let's, let's stick with what we know for now. Uh, and then, you know, and for those people, we just started running the Facebook ads directly to their website. And then we would put like a button on their website to just test how many people would bounce from the website to go check Amazon. Cause it's happening already. We just wanted to quantify it. So it's a good program. Um, it is, it's not ready for like, it's not ready for scale. Amazon has a long way to go before it's uh, something that should be used. I think that, you know, uh, listening to you, I'm almost thinking in my mind, Amazon algorithm for ranking is gonna need some kind of a change that basically factors in the external traffic factor uh, right. as a credit. So your your one external click may be considered as X. I think so, that if they just separate the data and just give it to all of, give it to us, I think like, 
we as Amazon marketers will help them figure it out. Yeah. They, just, they hide so much from us. And it's just so frustrating. Oh, yeah, Amazon does that. But that still does not. I mean, you, what you're talking about is uh, access to data. Uh, but how does that affect the ranking? So their, their algorithm. So I had a former Amazon uh, team member. Uh, actually, she was one of the, I believe she was a, a former category manager. She helped write one of the Amazon policies. She was talking about that, how, how much she regrets it now. So she was basically saying that the search team at Amazon is pretty secretive. Nobody really knows. So all this ranking thing. So ultimately, how is that going to need to be adjusted to encourage people to ex uh, advertise externally if it's actually penalizing them because it's dropping the conversion? Right. All the all the Facebook marketers in the world they, you know, they 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 hate Amazon for a lot of reasons, and I think the the leadership team at Amazon has made a lot of bad decisions over the last twelve months, but I think they've also made a lot of good changes. Uh, like when we look at the uh, the data that they provide to the to the big players like Jungle Scout and Helium 10, those tools are getting more accurate. And we can see them getting more accurate as we compare more and more actual Seller Central data. Yes. And so just that one fact alone is like is very refreshing. Yeah, but I, I want A9 to come to the table and be more collaborative, right? Let us let us see as much data as you can provide. Like brand analytics, man, was just like was such a, 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 a olive branch to, to sellers. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, here's all this cool data about demographics and stuff. Well, we assume that it's accurate, but it was just, it was so nice and refreshing for them to provide that. Yeah, that, that was my uh, question to the, the lady that I was talking about, uh, my guest. And she, uh, I, I said to her, so what are the chances of getting some cooperation from the search team? And they may share some information about the data, but as far as search, expect not. Yeah, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's in this kind of beautiful space right now where A9 is so smart, but it is far from an AI. Right. It's it's not it's not peering into the soul of our data. It's not predicting our behavior at a rate that we would be scared of. Right. It's just it's a pretty good ranking algorithm. It's not special. It's just one of the first and it's one of the biggest. And it's you know, it was it was successful on a platform that came in at the right time. If they were to install and 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 put it on the back of, a, of one of these super intelligent AI that are, that are popping up all the time, then I think the e-commerce economy would experience a revolution. They're like, this tool would help you know about products that you, you know, obviously that you talked about when you're around Alexa, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. it would just, it would, it would, it would send products to your house and they, they were piloting this for a while. I don't know if they're still doing it, but They'd send the product to your house before you even wanted to order it. And then if you wanted to keep it, you just would get charged. And if not, then you just send it back. You, you deny the delivery. You know who is doing so, that? You know who is doing it? Not Amazon. Not for products. Facebook already doing it. I cannot prove this to you. 
but I have seen it over and over. So, I mean, as you know, those smartphones, they have microphones, right? They're oh, listening. Okay. So, what? so what, this is what I saw, Eric. This, this, is, this was mind blowing. Uh, me and a friend of mine, we're talking about movies. Okay, she's in movie business and, uh, and I love movies. So we're talking about movies. And the next thing is content starts to show up about those movies. It's not even, it's, hold on. It's not even, this, this is one of my favorite topics of discussion. I mean, for, for everybody listening, like I, I think we are entering a phase of neo-feudalism as, as like an economy. It's, it's cap- capitalism and democracy failed us. You know, that like the bottom 80% of people have, a disproportionately low amount of, of the total wealth of, of the world. So now we end up with all these feudal lords like Bezos and Musk who have all the money, like they could decide tomorrow to provide to everybody and, and make perfect logistics. Like that's, uh, you know, I have a, I have a political platform that I'm going to move forward on with, with that idea in mind. We can move towards a type one civilization. Okay. I'm putting it on the page for, or on the, on the shelf for another day. Um, but an AI, right? Let's take that same scenario. You're talking about movies. Obviously the devices are listening, whatever. They don't even like try to hide it anymore. It's, it's just like, whatever. I am personally of the impression that I want them to know as much as, uh, about me as possible. Like I, I'm a pretty open book. I don't have a lot of stuff to hide. I obviously like, I don't want them looking in my house and seeing what I'm doing, but if they want to, if they want to listen to my, to my conversations about mattresses and provide to me the best and, and then give me a 20% coupon for mattress. Like we even, we even mess around. It's like, boy, it sure would be nice if Purple Mattress gave me a 30% discount right now on a California King right next to the Alexa device just to see like if it comes up. But what we're going to see in the future, right, and this is probably not far away, is you start talking about Top Gun with a friend, okay? And, and, and you're talking about uh, like his, his glasses or his pants or the motorcycle. So the AI would be smart enough to know, okay, like Tom Cruise is 5'8", 5'9", he wears like a, you know, a 28 waist and, uh, you know, he's like maybe 29 long. Like it, it, it knows who he is and it knows all the demographic information about him. It knows his religious background and it pairs that with everybody who, you know, if you ever enlisted for the military, if you ever watch military videos on, on YouTube, if you ever like watch gun videos, it like it figures out that you probably want to look like Tom Cruise from Top Gun. So then it's, it, it sends you this ad where it shows the glasses and the look from Top Gun and, and gives you a coupon for it. Like that's, that's creeping towards that AI. Right now it's just like, oh, you're talking about the movie? Here's an ad for a movie. Yeah. I want it to get to the point where it's like, oh, he, you know, here are discounted tickets to, uh, you know, California to go surfing. You know, here's, he, here's, a, here's a $20 gift card to go to the bar that they were at in top and by the way available only in the next 15 minutes counting down so <laughs> yeah yep. uh, this is uh so listen you still haven't answered my question so put two sellers one has good set of books you you can you can trust the information they provide you've done all i mean the, the information given is so valuable you basically uh, delineated what are the things that you're looking at for the investment to become an attractive one? So in terms of search, how much advertising, what, all, all those things. So in the end, let's assume that you've got two sellers. 
that are that have the that present the equal opportunity in the, in those areas. However, one of them, you look at their books and you say, "Oh man, you know these, these we don't even know if this information is that that we're seeing how much their inventory value versus their liquidity. Well, uh, we don't even know if it's accurate. How much impact does it have on the valuation of the company?" You know, since I'm already running, like I have the truth. When I get access to their account, I know the details, except for like Shopify and all the other stuff. I'm not a pro at that. Like when it comes to Amazon, I know. So if they give me a PL that's super inaccurate, um, I just want to know why. Really, like what, you know, where are you commingling your like personal finances with this? Like where's all the money going? Did you hire like a bunch of marketing agents? All of the above. Yeah. So, there are very few like red flag transactions in somebody's PL that would keep me from purchasing an asset that looked really good from that unified transaction report. If the, if the UTR looks really good, I mean, I'm going to be able to manage their books or my team's going to be able to manage their books way better than they are. So I'm not really worried about that. I just, you know, there's, if, if they have an agency that's running their Amazon, great. Like take that off the books. Awesome. Like I got that handled. We don't need them anymore. So it's not like, it's not, it's not a do or die. It's not a sink or swim, but they should have them together because it makes me trust them more. And that speeds up the transaction. Yeah. It makes it so that we can go faster. And communication does that in general. But one thing that I want to touch on is out of these people, out of all these Amazon sellers, um, I, I want us to change the, the conversation around Chinese manufacturing. So first thing is like, they're hard workers. I love all my Chinese partners. They're incredible. Shenzhen is a miracle of a place. So is Guangzhou, right? Those two places are incredible hubs of, of innovation and, and production. Um, but the last like 20 brands that I've looked at, I think only two of them have manufactured products in China. I see Romania and Italy and Turkey and United States and Mexico and Canada. They're all over the place. And so like we're not dependent on China and we don't need to be. You know, they make a lot of really important stuff, but at the end of the day, like there's plenty of, of products being produced outside of China. And I would like us to just be like, uh, you're an option. You know, you've got Alibaba, great. That's an option for me. But like Mexico doesn't have any tariffs right now on certain items. Like, I think we're going to go look for jute. We're going to go look to, to source jute in Mexico because I know they produce it. So I just wanted to, to throw that out there. But as far as like the you know, two, two businesses, one has good books, one has bad books. I really like, I, I want to look at their net profit. I want to look at how much I can impact their actual sales. I want to look at how much money they're wasting on advertising. Cause I know I can clean that up. And with all those things in place, I have a scorecard that I go through that pops out evaluation from me for me. And it's not perfect. It's not perfect. I, I come up with somewhere in the range of, of sometimes like 1.5 to five X of, of their EBITDA. And for the most part, like most people end up between like two and four. And so, yeah, please manage your books well, but it's not, it's not a deal breaker. Yeah, great. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, where, where are you based? Where did you grow up? Yeah, so I am in San Antonio, Texas. I'm actually in a little city on the northeast of San Antonio called Shirts, Texas. Uh, it's like an hour south of Austin. 
I was born and raised here. I left when I was uh, 18 to go to college up at Brigham Young University. I do not associate with that university anymore. In fact, I think it should be renamed because Brigham Young was a scoundrel and shouldn't have his name on anything. But um, I went up there, uh, served a mission for the LDS Church uh, in Kansas and Missouri. Left, uh, went back to school, went to Kansas City to just work and play, went to California to work and play, went to Hawaii to work and play. Uh, started dating my now wife there. She's from Utah, so we moved back moved back to Utah, got married, had a little boy. Uh, and then we went to go search for a, you know, try to get a mortgage in Utah and the ho home prices there are crazy. So we looked down here in Texas and ended up uh, finding a really sweet deal on a house and moved down here like a year and a half ago. Um, I'm a jujitsu practitioner and Kung Fu as well. So I practice Northern Shaolin and, and Wing Chun Kung Fu. And I've been boxing for 14 years now. And it's like, it's my passion. If, 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 you've never, if you've never been hit in the face, you absolutely need to try it, especially if you're a guy, I think it's, it's free. And, I don't know. I just, it's, it's a fascinating feeling. Um, so what I want to know is, so when I introduced you, I said, Amazon marketer turned Amazon seller turned Amazon expert. So uh, what led you to this, this complex world of due diligence on Amazon sell, selling? Oh yeah. Um, so I started a company in 2017, no, I don't know, sometime around when my son was born, that used a, uh, what's called a piezo-resistive nanocomposite strain gauge. It's a stretchy sensor that uses nickel nanostrands and nickel-coated carbon fibers to uh, track the, we, we, were, we were putting these stretchy sensors on the outside of a pregnant belly, and we were tracking baby kicks. And it was fascinating. My, my wife had a real, uh, you know, she was, she was sick during her pregnancy. The pregnancy was healthy. It was just like, I don't know. She, she just got real, real nauseous all the time. And we always wondered if our son was cooking. So we started this company and then um, our son was ironically born with a traumatic brain injury. And uh, it was called hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. And so he was having like a hundred seizures a day for the first six months of his life. It was really, really awful. And I was running the startup during that time. And so I went to a friend of mine named Ezra and I was like, Hey man, I talked to a bunch of mentors, but this was the conversation that really set it off. And I was like, Hey man, like I'm drowning. I don't know what to do. Like, I feel like I'm going to fail this company because I'm just so distracted with personal stuff. And, uh, and he said, let me introduce you to, to a buddy of mine that runs an Amazon marketing agency. So he introduced me to Thaddeus Hay at uh, Nozani, what it was called at the time. Nozani then got, uh, so I, I joined Nozani as just like a, as a salesperson where you're selling Amazon marketing agency services. And then Nozani got bought by Buybox Experts. Buybox Experts then sold to Spreetail. Right before that, I had left uh, to go to a bunch of different places. Uh, I went and worked for Jungle Scout at some point. So yeah, I like, I, I started my own nanotechnology company and then just like the pressures of life, you know, got me into a job and it just happened to be Amazon. And I, I ended up being pretty good at it. You know, it's, it's very technical, but it's also very marketing. It's pretty much exactly what I studied in school. I did marketing and mechanical engineering. So it's like, you know, I can do manufacturing and CAD design and all that kind of stuff. So it was like, it was just perfect. And Amazon exploded. And I have a, I have an uncle who just left Amazon after 26 years there. So like, had a lot of really cool connections. So yeah, that's how I ended up here.
So life circumstances kind of led you to what you were good at. That's right. Did you ever imagine doing this before or? Um, I've wanted to be a congressman since I was six years old. So I knew that I wasn't going, you know, I I knew I wasn't going to be a congressman when I was 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. You know what I mean? Like I I was going to have to do something in the interim. And so yeah, it's just one of the things that I've done along the well, way. You know what I'm what I'm hearing is because everything that you mentioned about your your work, due diligence, and um, and then some of the examples you gave, uh, I think what you seem to like is you seem to like making an impact. Oh man, I don't know. I because you, you're looking at the opportunity like keywords you're saying okay how many keywords are there I mean maybe that's a business for approach, sure, but sure. your approach I, is you know what where can I make an impact so any activity that kind of uh, has some kind of a way for you to make an impact you like to identify those and go after it. I'd, I'd agree with that I think I think that I love solving problems for sure and I love it when those when solving those problems makes me and everybody else a lot of money Um as far as like impact, that's a real, that's a real touchy word for me. And we could talk about this another time, but um, you know, I, I was, I, I grew up Mormon and that was my whole, that was the whole lens that I saw the world through. And if you, if you know anything about Mormons, it's very like, there's a very specific set of things that you need to do in order to achieve exaltation with God. So that was like my whole upbringing. I was raised that way. So then I left and I had a total existential crisis. And then, uh, recently the james webb space telescope released the that little picture of a grain of sand in the sky with thousands of thousands of galaxies and so like i feel so small i feel like the things that i do each day you know they just nothing really matters but what i've found in that in in kind of that phrase that nothing matters is that whatever I want to matter gets to matter to me, right? It's all subjective. It's all just however I want to build my life, however I want to live this life is only going to be important to me and to nobody else. And so do I think I can make an impact? No, no, I don't think I can make any sort of impact on the world, but I'm going to super try. You know what I mean? I'm going to, I'm going to do everything that I can, especially when it comes to like, you know, policy and economic development, yeah. Um, I, one of my favorite quotes is, um, I think it's by Thomas Jefferson. I gotta, I gotta figure this out because I keep misquoting it, but he said, I study war and diplomacy so that my children can study trade and commerce so that their children can study art and literature. Right. And so here we are at the cusp of neo-feudalism, I think as a, as a world, and we could, we could all get on the same page real quick and start just like dancing and doing art all the time. So yeah, well, that's where I'm at. It's kind of a weird place, but I feel good about it. <laughs> so uh, I, I think, I mean, obviously your life experience is, is, is very significant. Uh, it's the same thing, you know, we go through life uh, first fighting some of the ways that we're feeling. And then at some point we embrace them because we realize they are actually our strength. So I've, I've gone through the same, you know, because when you, you don't really know, you haven't, totally developed and matured some of your uh, thinking. Uh, So, but this is what I learned. Nobody's experience in life is unique. 
it's always somebody else somewhere had somewhat similar experience. Yeah. So since we are not all unique, I think that those who had the mindset to make an impact, so to speak, if you want to put it that way, uh, but feel that, you know, I don't matter, but there is another one that thinks the same, that thinks even though there may be, all of them may be thinking, I don't matter, but they want to make an impact altogether, they will make an impact for sure, because there's something called critical mass and the power of many and blah, blah. I think it, so. I agree. Uh, it will. So I think... Uh, you 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 are right in thinking uh, maybe just I don't matter we are so small but yes but we really are not because what that small piece is not alone there's another piece another piece totally yeah I hear you 100 percent so working together this was great so uh, Eric tell us you've given a lot of information uh, very practical uh, sellers can take away. One refreshing thing I heard from you is because I had the, the founder of Ecom Balance. They they are a bookkeeping company for e-commerce companies, and uh, and he was basically saying that when they sold another venture, they had their books were in in great shape, and the deal went through very quickly, and the trust factor was immediately installed, and they had a great valuation, but. If somebody doesn't have it uh, altogether, then their valuation will take a hit. What I heard from you is you do your own work to figure out their numbers. And so therefore, uh, if they are not keeping 100% good books, don't worry. Don't let that scare you. Yeah, don't let it scare you. Start, start the conversation. Yeah, great. So give us your contact information. Where can people uh, find you? Find me on LinkedIn. That's the easiest place. Eric Stomper, the one and only. Uh, I have a YouTube channel called The Idea Dad. I represent a whole bunch of agencies and aggregators, so I'm kind of just in the nether of the metaverse all the time. Uh, find me on LinkedIn. That's the best place. My cell phone number's on there. Hit me up with a text. I don't care. Like I'm, I'm down to, I'm down to hang out, down to talk. Uh, you can find me in Discord a lot of the time. Uh, typically playing like League of Legends or something with other Amazon sellers. So, uh, but LinkedIn, Eric Stomper. Great. So we'll put your contact information uh, on our website with the episode, wherever the episode gets pushed. So it will be there. So uh, anybody wanting to reach out, I'm sure they will. So thank you for being here, Eric. Thank you. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of another episode. See you on the next one. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure and subscribe, rate, and review our show. And be sure and share an episode with a friend. And thank you so much for being with us today. We'll see you next week here on Amazon Legends.